Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. On this, our very first episode, I have a long and winding conversation with economist, author, and co-creator of the Keynes versus Hayek rap videos, Russ Roberts. Russ is a very special person in my life. His podcast, Econ Talk, was really my gateway into becoming excited about economics. Almost a decade ago, I first reached out to him because of Econ Talk, while I was still a creative director at Spike TV, because I wanted to create something some kind of story, some kind of creative project about the financial crisis with Russ. And over the years since then, we've gotten to be good friends and and also really like learn from each other. And I consider him really one of my closest mentors. So this is a really exciting thing for me to have this conversation and to share it with you now. I hope you enjoy. I wanna start with how we first met. Because when I was a creative director at Spike TV, I, got the, I had the opportunity to meet celebrities from time to time. And I was never as excited to meet a celebrity with maybe one exception, which was Michael J. Fox, as I was when I saw your face appear on my, on my iPhone, returning my call from a voicemail I had left you at, I guess it was probably your George Mason University voicemail box. So I, I don't know if I've ever really heard from you, Russ, your, your side of receiving my voicemail message, which, so please like recount for me, this is, this is, um, the, the, this is winter 2009. Yeah, I used to get a lot of emails like the one I got from you or voicemails that somebody who I didn't know was from a total stranger would send me an email or a voicemail saying, you know, I really like your stuff. I think we could really do some interesting work together. Uh, I'm into film and I think we should have we should try to communicate economics. And I used to get those fairly often. Actually, I don't get them so much anymore. I think people have um, decided I guess I'm not very good at it. But in the old days... People thought I was uh, potentially a, a collaborator, and you were one of those I used to get, I don't know, one a month maybe. And I'd always write back the same thing. I, I know how time-consuming collaboration is, and I know how time-consuming film is. So when you suggested that we do some kind of film project together, which is, I think, what you reached out about, I thought, boy, this is going to be an enormous waste of time. This guy's not going to be very good. And I'm going to have to educate him about economics <laughs> constantly. And he's going to want to make films or do projects that I don't like because the plot or the visual will be deceptive or misleading on the economics front. But the filmmaker is going to think it's great for the drama. And I've had experiences like this before. So I'm pretty gun shy about that. I was pretty gun shy at the time. And so I responded the way I had come to respond at that point, which was to say, gee, that'd be a, that's worth considering. Uh, here's some things to read, and why don't you get back to me with like a synopsis, you know, or or some. I gave I gave you some homework. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I gave you some homework, yeah. and I said, you know, I want to. It was basically my way of saying, how committed is this guy? Is he really? Is he just kind of fooling around, or is he serious? And you responded, 
don't remember exactly, but you responded extremely seriously. It was clear you'd done a lot of reading and a lot of homework. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And at some point we scheduled a phone conversation and we had a lot of phone conversations. Well, I'm going to guess we did. maybe a dozen or more. And they were all interesting. They were all provocative. They were all had a lot of potential, but we weren't getting very far. And we originally uh, started with this ridiculous idea that we would create a sitcom. Uh, Keynes and Hayek are roommates in New York City trying to get by on limited resources. And Keynes is a spendthrift and Hayek is always worried about money. And that was our idea. And we started you know, brainstorming about how that would play out. And it was fun. We had a great time. That's right. And after at some point, I realized, you know, there's no output here. <laughs> we got a lot of input, <laughs> but not any output. We had nothing. It's hard. The first the first 80% of the creative process makes you think you're terrible at it, no matter how many times you've done it. That is, that is a warning I give to everyone who's starting a creative endeavor. It's like, just beware. The first 80% will suck. <laughs> Even if you're amazing. So I was pretty, at that point, pretty <laughs> discouraged. And I'm pretty sure it was my ultimatum uh, where I said the following. I said, look, you know, I really love this sitcom idea. I don't know why, because it's a really bad idea. But it, I was kind of infatuated with it. I think we both were a little bit in love with the conceit of it. And we decided that I think it was my suggestion that we should write the theme song for the sitcom. And and we I don't know why, but I had this image of the Mary Tyler Moore theme song, where at the end of it, Mary Tyler Moore tosses her hat up into the Minneapolis sky. And I always <laughs> like the emotional payoff of that. There's just this magical look on her face. That it's a very modern reference for even in 2009. It? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's so. Yeah, it, it, it was out. It was dated then. It's dated now. But but it it captured for me. A, uh, a certain uh, emotional freight that a three-minute song or two-minute song could have. And I thought, you know, if we could create that kind of emotional connection to the, to the listener, to the reader, to the viewer, well, we'll, this could lead somewhere. And I said, let's just do something. Instead of talking all the time, let's write this song. And um, you decided, I'm 99% sure it wasn't me, that it should be a rap song, which was a ridiculous idea. <laughs> so the, the backdrop that was happening on my end was that I was coming home every night super excited about all this economics I was reading and learning about in the, you know, with the, the backdrop of the financial crisis happening around us. And my wife, Lisa, who has always been my creative collaborator on everything I do was incredibly bored by what I was excited about. <laughs> and, you know, she had said, uh, you know, this is, this is the most boring stuff I could possibly imagine. I know you're excited about it, but you know, maybe if you make, um, maybe if you make this, uh, like the flight of the Concords, which we had been watching on HBO and, and, uh, you know, which is a you know parody, sort of very um, stylistically authentic parody. So the, you know, for for people who don't aren't familiar with the flight of the Concords, 
they create songs across a wide variety of genres and they're goofy silly lyrics they have they tell like silly stories but the music is actually really authentic to whatever genre uh they're sort of aping and so in the converse in one in one of the conversations we were having uh i'm not even sure if it was me or you that made the joke about rap after we had started talking about music and i immediately glommed onto the rap and said oh this is rap is a perfect format for this because you know, uh, it's uh, as a, it's got so much social commentary that's baked into it as a as a form. It's got a lot of lyrics. There's battles in rap, so there's always different voices coming in and out. So we can have Keynes and Hayek battling each other in rap form, and um, it really was a it really was a sort of crazy idea at the time because this was before Hamilton. This was before YouTube's. Uh, you know, epic rap battles. And, um, you know, this wasn't something that was just commonplace for you to see. Uh, you know, social media was still fairly young. So it wasn't like, oh, everyone's seeing viral videos of people doing crazy rap rap videos. Um, it had a high likelihood of total disastrous oh, yeah. failure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it was, uh, well, I, the other part that you probably don't know is that uh, I've been in besides playing Henry Higgins and My Fair Lady in eighth grade, which is kind of my world stage debut, John, uh, I was a very <laughs> active satirical songwriter in graduate school as an assistant professor, even. Uh, and in fact, Harold Dempsey's recently passed away, great economist. And I was just reminiscing recently with my wife that for his, I think his 70th or 60th, I can't remember now, birthday, I wrote a song for him and played it at a birthday celebration for the economics department at UCLA when I was visiting there. So I was used to writing economic songs, and I loved the idea of rap because I thought it would appeal to a younger audience. The only problem was I didn't know any rap music at all. So the normal impulse I had to write a song and perform it was going to be challenging for me. And I thought, well, that's okay. I'll just figure some of this out. And um, that's how we got started. I um, uh, I want to I jump ahead, or maybe perhaps even better, jump back a little bit. Because, um, you know, the, the end of the story, of course, is that we create uh, this, this rap video that surprisingly becomes incredibly popular, at least by economics video standards it still doesn't hold a candle to a Miley Cyrus or a Lady Gaga video on YouTube but it um it really is a project that in every conceivable respect changes my life because at the time of the release of the first Keynes versus Hayek rap video Fear the Boom and Bust I live in New York City I um or I I, I work in New York City I should say and live in New Jersey. I commute an average of three and a half hours a day, <laughs> which was my my uh, my classroom in economics via EconTalk and my iPod. And um, I can never imagine myself either living anywhere else or necessarily doing anything else than working in television and film. And the series of events that unfold as the result of that rap video directly change everything about my life. I, I, they lead me to leave my job at Spike to 
create emergent order, our company with my, my wife and my best friend. Um, we decide to vote with our feet from the uh, Northeast to and, and set up shop in Austin, Texas. And, you know, all of my creative endeavors since the creation of that video, that video sort of set this trajectory in motion are oriented around telling these kinds of complicated, economically oriented stories in one form or another. And it all starts with you, Russ. I mean, it really, you changed every aspect of my life. So cool. Uh, I have a slightly less dramatic version, but I will say, just to toot your own horn, toot your horn rather than you tooting your own horn, letting me toot it, which is that um, it allowed you, it gave you, in addition to everything you said, it, it gave you confidence and credibility as an e a economics thinker. Because the first rap video um, that we did together, The Fear of the Boom and Bust, we wrote uh, a whole bunch of lyrics. I don't know. I remember it was in the summer. I was out at, at Stanford at the Hoover Institution where I spent summers, and I was I was writing quartet, quatrain after quatrain, verse after verse, and you <laughs> were responding and writing your verses, and, and we were editing it, getting it better and better, and then one day came along and you sent me like, I don't know, in my memory, it was like a 20 verse version, like from scratch. And I just said, oh, this is better than anything we've done before. I'll just use this. And, you know, I, I had input into it. I don't want to suggest you wrote the whole thing, but you wrote an enormous part of the first one. The second one, I think, was, was much more 50-50 in terms of the lyrics. And I, I like to think I helped contribute to the visual storytelling. But to think that a filmmaker would write arcane details in lyrics about Hayek's theory of capital and Keynes's theory of uh, of, of macroeconomics is really a spectacular achievement on your part. And uh, most of it was better than what I did. So that was really, um, I, I know you're proud of that. You should be. It was an amazing thing. Now, for how it, it didn't change my life quite as dramatically, although I've done a lot more film stuff since then. But and, and offbeat things, uh, including appearing as Adam Smith off off Broadway. There probably should be two or three more offs in there, but um, <laughs> but and that's true. But I want to tell you a story which I think you've heard, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, after the first one came out, uh, a journalist came up to me afterwards and said, um, ran into him, and he said, "Boy, that that Kansai Rapidity is fantastic." I said, "Oh, thanks a lot." He goes, "Because you know that's going to be." on your tombstone that's going to be your epitaph and i thought really <laughs> that that's my epitaph <laughs> did you know this yeah did you know this reporter well. well for him to leap Too to well. that okay you know, it's like okay well you know graduate school some economics journal articles some books and my legacy is going to be an eight minute rap video so my first reaction to that was was i didn't consider that much of a compliment he meant it as one uh, but at, over the years, I, I've come to see it in a very different light. I am extremely grateful that we were able to produce those two videos together because they hit a a sweet spot of, for me, of education and entertainment combined that I think is very difficult. So it's, it's easy to make an eight-minute video that's entertaining – uh, that you don't learn anything from. It's easy to make an eight-minute video that's educational that nobody wants to watch. 
we were somewhat successful in creating an eight-minute educational video that was pretty entertaining and that was just um, incredibly gratifying the other part that's gratifying about it of course is that when you tell people you did a rap video in economics when I tell maybe not for you but when I tell people their first thought is that's gonna be awful <laughs> and so you're right yeah exactly Please don't and send so, me the link because <laughs> then I'll be forced to so have to feel like I've got a reply when they watch it because <laughs> the um, production values that we both decided and we could have gone either way we could have made it really cheap and and amusingly amateurish or first rate and we decided to go for first rate which was you know not easy but we did and it's i think it's i'm really proud of it it's beautiful and i saw it the other day i still like it which makes me incredibly happy let me toot my you know, own horn there for um, a minute sorry about that but yeah <laughs> you, you you deserve it. I, I mean, I think the other thing, the, so the reason that I uh, cold called you of all, because at, at, the, at, the, at that point, and as I'm thinking about it, we're almost at exactly the 10 year mark, I think, roughly of when I had actually reached out to you for the, for the first That's time. Because right. it's 2019 and it was, or it was winter t of, of 2009. And there, there was a lot of reasons why I reached out to you instead of anyone else, and why you know, in in so many respects, um, you've been a real mentor to me um, beyond just economics. And that is, you know, I was listening to your podcast, Econ Talk, and it was like a primary source for me to try to understand what was happening in the world at that time. But the things beyond the economics, there was. And you've always had this, a um, a commitment to civility and to civil discourse. You brought people on from a wide variety of backgrounds and, and ideological perspectives and always treated them with respect. Um, you, as anyone that knows you knows, are naturally uh, like warm and jovial and, 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 and giggle. <laughs> And and with your with with your friends with your guests with people with just people in general and 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 I feel like the, that fact drew me to you as much as the way you ex you know exposited the economic facts and 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 it was funny because when I had reached out I was incredibly passionate about this fairly particular thing which was the Austrian business cycle theory and I was expect I was hoping oh. Uh, you know, uh, Russ blogs at Cafe Hayek. Surely he's going to be just as excited about all this stuff. And I, when I when I would bring these things up with you, <laughs> say, well, you know, <laughs> I uh, I don't know if that's really true or not. Um, you know, what you are really it's passionate about with Hayek. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. It's like, what about expectations? I'm not sure if you know. Why do businessmen not? know that this is coming and i'm not gonna we don't need to recount all the details of that you know you can watch the video and it does a pretty good job but the the core of your economics was always emergent order which again in in the true the, the influence you've had i mean we, we the, there's a reason we called our company emergent order which is the the notion that order and harmony can emerge not through a conscious plan but out of the sort of symphony of plans and chaos of trial and error 
that is a complex system, especially a complex system of people, you know. And so that was always, I think, the theme that you would come back to again and again. So, you know, my question, Ross, is how how did you get on the emergent order train? Like, where did your because this is a theme and a passion that that runs right up to the right up to your most recent work and continues it's very foundational for you as it is for me now how did you how did you come to appreciate this concept um you know how do you think about it well, i want to first respond to what you said before about the kind things you said about my civility and all that because when we first started working on this i think we decided pretty fairly uh early on that that it would be fair to Keynes, even though we were sympathetic to Hayek. That's right. And one of the most satisfying things that we had happen was that I had a chance to interact with uh, Robert Skidelsky, Keynes's biographer, and show him the lyrics before we recorded the the videos, before we made the videos, and he pronounced them, quote, fair to Keynes, which was deeply gratifying I think to both of us and as as I often like to tell the story one of the complaints that people would give us after the either of the videos was that Hayek got the last word and I would say well we both like Hayek and there's two people so it's a 50-50 and yes we did choose the one we like to have the last word but right. Keynes gets equal <laughs> airtime and we tried to make his arguments as fair to his intellectual legacy as we could and we thought that would do was was the the right thing to do we also thought it would help encourage people to watch it it wasn't just some piece of propaganda and you know i tell those people who complain and say you can make your own and then you can give hayek you can give keynes the last word (laughs) yeah um how far we've come from a time when that the complaint is merely <laughs> yeah. the one side yeah. got the last word after yeah. a fairly equal yeah. representation. And, and, and I guess, um, you know, the other part that we both thought of at the time was, I'll, I'll put it this way, one of the best comments we ever got on the videos up on YouTube, and it got probably got more than once, was somebody would say, how come no one ever told me about this Hyatt guy? Yeah, I've heard of Keynes. <laughs> uh, if, right. and if it was, it had been an audio file. It had been Keynes. Cause I don't know why people always pronounce him Keynes because it's K U I. But, but they say I've heard of Keynes. You know, how, how come I never? No one ever told me about Hayek. And so, you know, you could make the case that Hayek should maybe get more airtime than Keynes. But we didn't do that. Uh, we gave him pretty much equal time. Same number of verses. Same number of lines. But Hayek did get the last word. The second, the second one, I think um, Hayek maybe has more lines. If somebody's going to fact check us on that, not but the by first a lot of lines. Uh, the first one, it for might sure. Be, he gets not the by an, not by a lot. Verse. He's also the more built, Keynes and he is. wins the Keynes fight. Keynes has the better body. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. was maybe a happy accident yeah, of our of our true. actors, yeah, but um... um. But to come back to your question, sorry on the um, and and. Yeah, yeah. How did you get into economics? Is maybe the best way to think about it. And then, what led you from economics in general to this concept of emergent order in particular? Well, I often like to use emergent order as an example of a concept that is easy to describe and very difficult to absorb. You just did a beautiful job describing it a few minutes ago, um, and you could 
in theory, memorize that the way you described it and then spit it back on a test in answer to the question, what is emergent order? But that's really different from having it inform the way you look at the world and to use it as a concept that helps you understand the world around us. Um, as you and I have talked about many times, it, it, I think it's a human impulse to ascribe agency to anything that occurs. And that's not a bad impulse. Uh, an example I often use is, you know, if you want your garbage cleaned up from your house, you better take it out to the street yourself. They don't come into the house and get it for you. If you want your dishes cleaned, you better clean them. If you want to rake, right. if you want your leave your yard to be free of leaves, you should, you're going to have to rake the yard. Things don't just take care of themselves. Uh, and yet, in certain areas of life, it seems like they kind of do take care of themselves. And so that whole idea is so alien to the standard cause and effect, push this lever and get this result uh, kind of intuition that most of us have about daily life. And so it's not a natural concept. It's a rich, complex concept. And, you know, I, I read Hayek uh, for the first time as a first-year graduate student in 1976. We were assigned the Use of Knowledge in Society. It made zero impression on me, none. <laughs> I just I probably thought it was boring. Um, it's not the most. <laughs> he's not. He's not a. He's not um, a flowery writer. Had had Hayek had the writing chops of Marx and Engels, I think we might be living yeah, in a different no, world. He, he's not uh, a great stylist, uh, and his books are particularly the word I always think of is turgid, uh, which is a word you don't <laughs> get to use much. But it's best. It's one of the places it really comes in handy, uh, but. His essays are, are a little lighter, a little easier to read, but they're not what you would call riveting or entertaining. They're deep and thoughtful and, and provocative. And so at some point, uh, I went back to that essay. But I think the real reason, I, I, I'm not, I really not sure the answer to your question of how I got on the emergent order train, other than to say that in 19, uh, excuse me, in 2003, I joined the faculty at at George Mason uh, for the next nine years. And coming to George Mason, George Mason's famous for being one of the handful of places that takes Hayek and Mises and other Austrian economists seriously. And I thought, you know, I probably need to get more interested in this. And I started uh, spending time with Don Boudreau, who was chairman at the time. And he would encourage me to read essays by Hayek. We'd start talking about it. And through that, I realized, you know, this is a whole piece of economic thinking that is neglected both in economic education and in, in graduate school and research. And I started to wonder if there was a research agenda, a, a set of, of papers or research that might be done that could incorporate Hayek's insights more thoroughly. I didn't make a lot of progress on that, but I did realize and, and start to think a lot about how I would change the way I taught economics. And so after a while at George Mason, I overhauled my uh, microeconomics class, both undergrad, uh, master's degree, and PhD level, which I taught at, um, at various times. I think I taught the PhD class, certainly taught the master's class many times. Uh, but I decided to make Origin Order the centerpiece of it rather th than um, what I had done before. And what that meant was it was a lot harder to write exam questions 
which is part of the reason I probably wasn't so keen on doing <laughs> right. it before, and part of the reason, tragically, why I think it's not as important a part of certainly undergraduate education in economics is that it's it's a it's a it's a lens, it's a it's a way of of perceiving reality that doesn't necessarily make it easy to ask little cute equations about say. Uh, comparative advantage or the demand for strawberries or other things that economists in introductory classes like. And I, so I just got interested and I found the more I read about it, the, the more I realized how rich a concept it was. And um, yeah, that, that's kind of what happened. And then at one point in 2008, I wrote a novel that, with the goal of teaching people the idea of emergent order, the book I wrote called The Price of Everything. Uh, a parable of possibility and prosperity and i realized that book i mean it's a i don't know 200 something page book that was i still didn't cover the subject you know there's still a lot more to say and to think about and to realize and it just it's a rich idea how do you describe it when somebody says i heard you talk about this emergent order concept can you explain that to me again i'm not sure i get it so I like the idea. I like the wording of uh, Adam Ferguson, who was uh, a rough contemporary of Adam Smith, um, Scotland in the 18th century. He said certain things are the product of human action, but not human design. So there are so many things in our life that are not intended by anyone, but look like they are. They look orderly to start with, but more than orderly, they look often purposeful, which is surprising because it's no there's no one brain or intelligence or actor behind the actions it's a multitude of people as you suggested earlier who's use the metaphor of a symphony i i sometimes use that metaphor i also use the metaphor of a jazz band or a uh, a quilt that's woven by different people yet somehow fits together um and there's so many examples in daily life. You know, a, a trivial one would be uh, the level of noise in a restaurant. Uh, no one decides how noisy a restaurant should be. Certainly, the designers of the restaurant, the builders, built some kind of acoustics into the ceiling. But how much volume comes out of the voices of the people in the place is an emergent phenomenon. And a lot of times, you'll be in a crowded restaurant or bar and you'll be really talking really loudly, and you'll think, Gee, I wish we were all talking quietly. So you could send out a, a little text to everybody in the restaurant. There's no need to talk so loud. Uh, but that won't last very long. It's kind of like sending out a memo that says, uh, during rush hour, if everybody could just go a little bit faster, we could all move together. <laughs> and yet somehow we struggle to coordinate rush hour. Rush hour is an example. Rush hour traffic is an example of an emergent phenomenon where the outcome's not so attractive. Very interesting question as to why some Origin orders lead to attractive results and some to unattractive results. But in the case of rush hour traffic, which is one of the unattractive one, unattractive ones, uh, whose fault is it that we're all going 12 miles an hour? Well, it's nobody's fault. Who can I blame? Well, there's nobody to blame. Uh, if somebody dumps a bag of garbage over my fence, I know there's someone to blame. I, I may not find the person, but I know that there's someone who did that. Uh, if someone leaves a cake on my doorstep, I know there's someone to thank. But who do I complain to when the traffic's 12 miles an hour? Because we, we do it. We decide to go 12 miles an hour. 
And if we all decided to go faster, we couldn't coordinate it. It wouldn't work very well. Uh, so as a result, we're going 12. And if you say, well, whose fault is it? It's my foot on the steering wheel and your foot on the, I mean, on the accelerator, and on the gas, and it's your foot on the gas and so-and-so's foot, and that person's foot. And yet somehow we're doing, everyone's doing something that no one wants to do, which is to go 12 miles an hour. And similarly, that's a negative one. Let me, let me give a positive one, then you can follow up. But you know, I like this example of sometime in the last 15 years or so, about a few hundred million people left the Chinese countryside and came into the cities of China. And a lot of those families had children that used to work on the farm and now going to school. So a lot of more Chinese kids, I'm very confident, are using pencils. So it should be that when you go into a store in January of 2019 to get a pencil, whether it's a Staples or a Walmart or a grocery store or a CVS, they should say, well, what do you mean pencils? The Chinese got them this year. There's <laughs> there's hundreds of millions of them. There are none left for us. We'll have them again in 20, 2022. And yet that never happens. How is that? Who's in charge of pencils? Who's sleeping badly at night worrying that there might not be enough pencils for people other than the Chinese? And the answer is no one. No one's worrying about it. There's nothing to worry about. Why is it that on Super Bowl Sunday, which is the biggest pizza day of the year coming up on February 4th, 2019, more pizza sold on February on Super Bowl Sunday than any day of the year, and it's a big amount. How is it on the same day of the year you can get a bagel or a scone or a croissant or anything that's not this is about as far away from a football game as, you, as you'd like. Why is it when you go into the bakery or the bakery section of the grocery, they're not out of it? They don't say, oh, well, all the flour went to pizza. Are you kidding? It's Super Bowl Sunday. What were you expecting? And yet somehow that coordination of my desire to have a bagel or a croissant and your desire to eat six pizzas with your buddies on Super Bowl Sunday because you're hosting a big party, it's all there waiting for us. Isn't it? Who's worried about that? And the answer is nobody. Just emerges. And the price system does it. I mean, it's, again, the essence of an economics class. There's a set of feedback loops. And in the case of pizza, the feedback loops work really well. And they tell us to how to, they tell millions of people signals about how to behave, to grow more wheat and to, and to build trucks that can carry the flour and that get the pizza to the pizza place and get it back to your house. All those incredible things that happen that, that no one's in charge of. The feedback loops are fabulous. In the case of the traffic, the feedback loops are not so fabulous. That's basically because the roads are unpriced and unowned. I'm not saying we should price the roads. It's a long story. But, you know, these feedback loops that, that create self-ordering systems are really extraordinary. And the fact that we don't spend time thinking about that outside of a handful of economics classes and in, in a handful of of places is uh, it's a shame because it's an extraordinary part of daily life that's all around us. Um, you had uh, created this is one of it's one of your video solos. You created a beautiful um, piece on emergence and in, in a soliloquy towards how we get our bread, our daily bread. Uh, that I'm gonna we'll, we'll be sure to link to in the show notes for this because. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it really is a it really is a, an incredible thing that we take for granted. And I think one of the I feel like this is always sort of the meta conversation, if you will, that we're having when we talk about society. Um, you know, 
how much of this challenge that we have with describing emergent systems do you think is a, a function of how hard it is to literally tell the story of them. So, you know, there's two ways to look at the world and and, and, and two ways to think about how things happen. You know, like you'd said, you know, there's there's planned, there's planned orders. I, I decide as an individual that I'm going to take the trash out or I am the leader of a company and I make a decision for the company about how, that what kind of product we're going to make. Um, although even in that case, the decision might be made by me at first, but uh, my customers quickly are the ones that decide whether we'll continue to make that product. So in a very real sense, companies' um, decisions are made by their customers more than any other any other stakeholder. But you know, you 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 have this sense of planned orders. Well, why is there, why are drug prices too high? Well, because somebody's decided that they're too high. Or why is, uh, why is college so expensive? It's well, because there's, a, there's like an intuitive desire to believe that someone has decided this. And in, and, and in some, you know, in the most extreme version of this sort of planning is, of course, command economies like the Soviet Union, communism, where you have actual five-year planning boards deciding how much bread is going to be produced and in what, and in what variety. And, um, and, and, you know, on the opposite extreme, you have a, you know, a liberal economy, a laissez-faire or free market economy where there is no committee. It's simply supply and demand. It's Adam Smith's invisible hand at work. There's as much bread as there, there are, people willing to buy it and other people willing to step forward and meet that demand with more, with more bread. Um, why does, why do people, I think it's fair to say that people really struggle to hold in their head the notion of this self-organizational principle, even in a world where we have thing where we have this very foregrounded, we have Wikipedia, which, which, you know, at some level, it's maybe the easiest one for people to get like, oh, it's like Wikipedia. It's like there's no experts writing the entries. It's just this emergent process of people making contributions and then other people being notified and editing them. And and yet out of that chaos comes an encyclopedia that's actually more accurate and more vast and more expanding and more up to date than any expert curated encyclopedia in all of human history. Um, so even even despite like the multitude of examples, uh, people just struggle to have this idea like live with them in their gut. Their gut is still well. I'm looking for the person who did that. I'm looking for the the guy in charge, or want there to be a a, a guy or a girl in charge. And why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think it's a great question. Um... And you, you know, what I mentioned earlier that when something bad happens, you look for people to blame. And sometimes it might be a group of people, not just one. And that that's relevant. Certainly, that matters. Um, it, it it's very possible that the uh, pharmaceutical industry influenced Congress to have a set of legislations, uh, legislative outcomes made it easier for them to make a lot of money off drugs and it's sort of emergent but 
not exactly. It's not a, anything close to what you or I would call a free market. Um, so sometimes there are people to blame for the way things turn out. And then in that particular case, you'd want to ask if even in that world, there there's some benefits from that system, which are the encouragement of finding new drugs. And you might want to think about whether that's worth it or not. That's complicated. Uh, certainly the issue of patents and, and monopolies for a limited period of time have to face that trade-off. And, and I mention that just because a lot of times people will take the pharmaceutical industry or the healthcare industry and say, well, this shows why we can't leave things alone. Right. And the answer is, well, but we don't leave them alone. <laughs> we never have. So please don't use that as an example. Use something else. And and um, But I think you're asking a, a, a deep point, which is why is this way of thinking unintuitive? I often use the example of decision-making. Uh, you and I together, if you came to visit and we decide we're going to go to a movie, we'd have to come to a decision as a group of you and me. If let's suppose our wives are along, and once the four of us are trying to make a decision, there's going to be a whole bunch of issues that arise. We're probably not going to agree necessarily on what the ideal movie is to watch, and we might, if we were living in the same town, we might decide, well, yeah, you know, you got to decide last time, so even though that's, you know, maybe maybe it's my turn. You might decide it's my turn because you got to decide last time, or you might decide. I might decide, well, you know, I kind of got my way the last time. So even though I don't want to see what John wants to watch or John and Lisa want to watch, I'll just, I'll just go along with it. So there's different ways. We, or we could have a vote. You know, we can have a vote. We can come to a consensus. We can have veto power. So many different ways we decide things. Uh, but the way we decide Google is a verb, which it is, is not like any of those things. Not like any of our daily life decisions. So... Google right. is not in favor of its company name being used as a verb because it threatens its trademark and property rights in its own name. So they don't want it to be used as a verb, and they try to stop it, and they can't. We decided, meaning the daily, day-to-day -day users of the English language have made Google a verb, just like the way the French have made Le Weekend the phrase for Saturday and Sunday, even though it's not, quote, good French, and even though the National Academy of France... L'Académie Française says it's bad French. They can't stop it. It's not in their hands. We decide. The users of French, the users of English. So there are many things like that that don't have an analog in everyday life. And, you know, if you start thinking about emergent order, you start to realize that there is this other way of deciding, the way we do as a group, but not the way we usually do as a group, through a vote or a legislature or a consensus or a veto power or taking turns. All those standard ways are different than the way we decide how many bakeries there are in in, in Washington, D.C. area or Austin, Texas. Somebody Who decides that? There's a certain number. Who decided it? Do you think there are too many? Not enough? Too bad. There's nobody to complain to. It just happens. Now, you could have zoning and other restrictions uh, that make it difficult or may, maybe not work out as well or maybe makes it, work, makes it work out better. So some regulation has an impact. And the political process affects it, but it's not any czar of bakeries makes those decisions. So why is that way of thinking not natural? So one reason, as I just gave you, which is that it doesn't really correspond to the other ways that we think of group decision making. And it's not even really decision making exactly. in, any, decision. in any real sense, right? There's not really a it's mind. An 
Right. I use the word decide because I don't have another word. <laughs> or even the word yep. we. I know that when you were at George <laughs> Mason, there was a, a strong emphasis to say, lose yeah, the we. Arnold there, Kling wrote there, that there's, not a, there, there's no we. There's no we that decided. When, when, when the four of us get together and, and, and the movie decision emerges... Uh, if there's dissension among the ranks, unless it's uh, there is not really a we. It's it's more there's some process that but arrives at the outcome. that's something like a we in a way that isn't true. That's the closest thousand people in a city, right? Right. So I take your point. Or a nation yeah. like the, the like America has yeah. decided to to reject yeah. immigration. It's a, a statement that is a shorthand that. Does it make sense? Um, not a meaningful statement. Just, it's not even really a thing, and yet it's got to be the most universal fake language we have in, in talking about big issues, yep, isn't so it? Yeah, so I concede both your points. There's no we and there's no decide in the case of Google. Nobody's of using Google as a verb. Nobody is uh, delegated to make that decision. There's no subcommittee of the English language that rules on it. But we don't have the language for it. So that's one reason. We literally don't have the language. And the sub, the best we could do, we decided Google is a verb, is a corruption of the word we and a corruption of the word decide. Because it's not really – it's not like any other we decide that we have in our daily experience. You'll just say it emerged, it emerged a lot. Right? And that's not satisfying, but it's more accurate. The other reason I think is uh, – comes from an insight of an EconTalk guest, uh, Ed Lemer a macroeconomist and econometrician at UCLA who once uh, who wrote that we as human beings are, quote, pattern-seeking, storytelling animals. Uh, and I think that's a deep insight about the way our brains work. I think it's t incredibly true. The world's really complicated. We can't make sense of it, all the data and, and action and activities that are surrounding us. So we tell ourselves narratives, stories that help us organize our thinking, and we look for patterns to help us understand cause and effect and a lot of those are missing from emergent order right there's the story doesn't have a, a villain or a good a good person who we want to honor it's this weird collective chaos this stew it's chaos is a bad word but this stew of interactions this quilt we weave together this music we produce through our interactions and 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 working together and so how's that how do I tell a story about that? Now, of course, I tried to do that that novel, but the narrative within that novel is not an, exactly an emergent narrative. It's a little bit, but I mainly have characters talking about emergent order. It's a little bit of emergence in the narrative, but that's like the best you can do. And if, if I don't point it out to you, you missed it because <laughs> it's going on all the time around us and you're not noticing it now. So I, it, it's a, it, what's beautiful about it is it's a, you know, often when, way it's often described is it's hidden harmony it's a a working together that's not coordinated by anyone that is not easily noticed it's hidden and so th there's a deep reward to understanding the idea there's a deep uh, it, it, it enhances your appreciation of the texture of daily life uh, and I also think it's true so it's very it's a very good thing to understand more deeply but I don't think it comes very naturally to us I um you know, I had I had discovered you and your podcast because I had read The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb and found it so fascinating and so compelling that I went to his website seeking more information. I wanted to hear this man speak. I went, and, and, and I saw a link on the bottom of his, at the time, incredibly archaic-looking <laughs> website. 
uh, and it was a link to his interview with you on Econ Talk, and down the rabbit hole I went. And one of the things that I believe he, um, Taleb, who's been a guest on Econ Talk many, many times at this point, and uh, um, and then I got a chance to meet with you at our uh, economist um, uh, Buttonwood gathering yeah. event. Um, uh, he he he. I think he coined a term, the narrative fallacy, um, which really kind of taps into this this problem, right? So you said Ed Lemer that we're you know Ed Lemer, Lemer's idea that we're pattern seeking storytelling animals, and that storytelling part. Um, the pattern seeking and the storytelling both create this um, narrative fallacy, right? So you look at a complex problem with a lot of moving parts, like the financial crisis of 2008, and you see patterns and you tell stories, and stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They are a, a linear arc. And by virtue of connecting dots in the pattern that you see with your own biases that you bring... And the very nature of a story itself, especially once you'd want to bring in heroes and villains and obstacles that are overcome, you tell a story that by definition in a complex system is a, is a lie. And that's the narrative fallacy. So, then, so one narrative fallacy or one narrative of the financial crisis is, well, we, since the 1980s, we deregulated finance and it accelerated in the 90s and that caused the whole economy to become... Uh, unleashed in the greed that's embedded in capitalism, you know, sowed the seeds of its undoing as it always does when it's allowed to run free like the wild animal spirit that it is. And and another narrative is, um, well, the government consciously propped up housing and you know, printed excessive money and had an easy money policy with low interest rates and blew a big, big bubble. And none of that was the free market whatsoever. And private bankers are just trying to do what's right and uh, trying to earn returns for those grandma's pension funds and those teachers union pension funds that were demanding 8%. And they went looking for it everywhere they could find. And turns out Bernie Madoff was one of the guys willing to do it. And, you know, in a free market, they, the, none of that would have happened. And, um, and so there's no blame for the free market. This is entirely the government uh, created crisis, and um, and you know the the truth is obviously some some mix of these things. Uh, but but the the ironic thing, of course, or the unfortunate thing, I guess, is that the stories we tell in these when we look at these complex systems are often driven far more from by our own biases and 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 preconceptions. They're, they're, uh, than they are by a careful look at the data. And even well, and even the careful look at the data. Which data? There's data usually on all sides. Doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean you can tell yourself any story you want. Some stories are more plausible and credible than others. But you know, I, the narrative fallacy is the willingness to cram uh, every fact into your worldview and ignore anyone that that, that doesn't fit. And we all have a tendency to do that. I don't know if he coined that phrase, by the way, but he uses it. And the, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite examples of this, I, I won't name the person, but it's a true story. Uh, a health um, advocate, uh, an advocate of healthy eating, uh, got cancer, which was awkward because she was a healthy eater. And in her mind, if you eat healthy, you don't get cancer. 
So she attributed her cancer to a bag of potato chips that she had eaten in her youth. Now that sounds like a joke. I don't think it was. I don't think it was a joke. I think that was a comfort to her because otherwise, her life was something of a a lie, right? Now we know, you and I know that how long you live and whether you get cancer is somewhat related to your actions, but it's a lot of it might be related to your genetics. It has nothing to do with your choices. But if you're selling a story, if your narrative is eat well and live long and you have an event like that, you gotta have a story. You gotta fix you can't have the narrative end on that unhappy ending because that ruins everything. So you gotta fix all the facts. You gotta make sure you gotta overweight some and underweight others and that's just what human beings do and if you're not aware of that you are going to struggle because in life because you're going to lie to yourself a lot you know one of my favorite lines is richard Feynman's. <clears throat> you know the first principle is 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 not to fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool and that's just really hard to remember because i'm really smart i don't know about you john but i know about this already <laughs> so i don't i don't need to worry about being fooled but of course i do Right. I, I, somebody I, I heard recently something to the effect of humility is the, um, you know, pr- there might be only one sin and it's the sin of pride. And, uh, you know, you're really in danger of of um, of being guilty of it in the worst possible way when you believe yourself to be humble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, I, you know, this one of the things that is so unique about you as a as an economist is we're talking about storytelling and you've been translating your economics understanding into narratives for a long time. This was one of the other things that attracted me to you is seeing the way, you know, you're, you had a book about trade called the choice and, and, and then, you know, like you said, you have uh, the, 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 um, the price of everything. And obviously the rap videos are storytelling and, and your other your other video content is storytelling, and even econ talk. Your podcast is is often very rich in story. Um, storytelling and statistics, in some level, almost are polar opposites. They're, and so, you know, you you have both sides of the brain at work. Have you always been that way? Have you always had the sort of creative side? Um, battling with the the systematic sort of mathematical side, how, you know, what has attracted you to storytelling? Like, how did why didn't you end up going into creative writing or something um, that fully embraced this sort of storytelling creative impulse? That's a good question. Uh, flattering one, thank you. Um, I, you know, I'm if you're not careful, you're you're bad at both. <laughs> My analytical ability is lousy. Um, and that really, that, that is the, you know, jack of all trades, master of none is, is not, um, that's a relevant, there's a reason that's a saying. Uh, but I do think there is some um, of, of both those things in me, which is, you know, like it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, but I like to think of it mostly as a blessing. Uh, but but I I want to disagree with you a little bit or push back on it a little bit. In, I do think that in terms of capabilities and professional practice and careers, um, 
there's a trade-off there in terms of where you spend your time, right? You know, whether you spend your time as a storyteller versus a, a theorist to make it dramatic or, or econometrician, which is a fancy word for an economist who does statistical work. But but I do think they come together in a certain sense that in that uh, there's a, I think of it as a, uh, a myth that you can just look at data and figure out what's going on. To understand what's going on, even with data, even with empirical evidence, whether it's statistical analysis or facts, you need a framework. You, you, ultimately, you're still telling stories when you do statistical work. Uh, it doesn't look like storytelling. It looks like math and science. But there is a, a storytelling aspect, I think, to all of human understanding. Um, you know, whether it's the metaphors we use for how to think about reality and science or the the math we use. When we use the math, we usually put a story around it to help us understand it. Right. And it's a various types of modeling that, that are going on there using rhetoric and using human language. Human language is incredibly imprecise. And the appeal of math is that you avoid that imprecision. The cost of math is you leave out some stuff. Um, but once you've done the math, most people tell a story around the math or around the data or around the statistical analysis. And it's just one story. There are a lot of other ones they decided not to tell. Yeah, you know, I, I don't have the exact verbatim quote, but I had a wonderful um, quote from a, a reader of mine who said, uh, you know, there are a lot of dots in the universe. It's not that impressive to create a picture out of the dots. The question is, why'd you leave out some of the other dots? Because there's you left out most of them when you drew your picture. Right. And that's the challenge. The um, it's funny because at some level, uh, cause and effect is a story. Oh, so, of course, absolutely. So you necess- you can't avoid. I I feel like this becomes this question of um, you know, like the big data question is becoming more and more um, interesting now that we have computer systems that can recognize patterns in ways that felt felt unlikely and felt uniquely human whether it's recognizing cats in in a folder of 10,000 images or um or teasing out um correlations between two pieces of data and and putting them forward and i th- there's i think there's clearly a movement of people who believe that that's all you need that you just um you know, you can just let well, the data yeah, tell we'll, you what the data we'll is going to tell you. Out. And that's, I think, a fallacy. It's not going to happen. It's not, you know, you mentioned Nassim Taleb. He says the bigger the data, the bigger the mistakes. Uh, he's somewhat cynical about that, but I think he's onto something. And what he what he's suggesting, and I've seen this, you know, many times, it's early days. So maybe this will turn out uh, more rosy than it appears to now. But you know, we have a huge amount of data. There's a lot of patterns you can find that are totally misleading, but you'll find them because there's a lot of data. The more data, the more patterns. It's a better way to say it than, than Taleb's more cynical point, but that's a fact. Um, you're going to find correlations that are just the result of chance. And uh, you need a way to think about how reliable those relationships are, uh, whether they can be used to understand causation or whether they're just by chance. 
and that's we're imperfect that's not easy to do it's you know more data in general in theory you can in theory you can rule out the role of chance more easily but it turns out in reality you can't because you have so many more ways of collecting and connecting things so uh the jury's out on that. It doesn't mean we're not going to learn a lot more about the human enterprise from the fact that we have the ability to collect lots of data about things. We might. That'd be great. You know, maybe we'll be able to customize uh, medicine so that your dose will be different from mine. Your tolerance for some medicine and side effects will be different from mine or some treatment. Those are all, that's the promise of big data. Maybe it'll, some of it, I think some of it will come true. So I don't mean to suggest it's going to be a, a total failure. I just think people are way too overly optimistic about where it's going to, where it's going to end up. I, I like you, I, I, um, I, I have this left brain, right brain tension when I start, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, I wanted to draw, be a Disney animator and I would draw the Disney characters and, um, and when I was applying for colleges, I applied both to computer science programs and film schools. And I actually got into NYU's film school and decided not to go there, but instead went to Penn State in computer science before I switched to film. And so I've, and I ultimately switched to film in part because I realized I love computers. I love using computers. I love to follow the news about computers. Um, but I really like to use the computer to make things more than I want to make the computers themselves. And, and so I, I always, I track the, this tech, I still t track technology news closely. And I, I'm, I don't know what yet to make of uh, artificial intelligence. I know you had a recent guest on uh, who was um, a real seasoned professional uh, and theorist and practitioner from MIT who you know, sort of was putting a cold, you know, a wet blanket on the the people who are sort of um, the commentariat claiming that AI is going to rule the world and that you can kind of draw this straight line from, um, you know, recognizing patterns in an image search to total, um, like to, towards this sentient life and to towards the singularity in its most um, extreme sort of form. And I... I guess I'm a little more skeptical or maybe a lot more skeptical that that's that we understand these things as much as we're claiming to. I mean even the people who know this about the stuff way more than I do say well the way the way these neural networks actually work the the outputs they generate we don't really actually understand. They're they're um you know we train these, you know, we have a function, a sort of description of a of a process, and then um, we unleash that function on massive amounts of data, and sometimes it turns out to actually work pretty well. And it, so, so even terms like learning, like machine learning, seems like it might be another instance of learning is the only word we've got to use, but it's probably not learning in the way that humans learn. Well, I don't think we understand very well how humans learn, so that, that's, um, I mean, I agree with you, but it, it is interesting how complicated they are on both ends, the human end and the AI, artificial intelligence end. The guest you're thinking about is Rodney Brooks, um, and what I took away from that conversation was that the kind of romantic AI where the robot teaches itself a second language or figures out how to solve problems generally rather than through a narrow algorithm 
that's just a long way away. Maybe we'll get there. Maybe there will be some of the more extraordinary visions of artificial intelligence that people have propounded. Maybe they'll come true, but they're not five years from now, and they're probably not 20 years from now. And we made a lot of progress, right? You know, we, we went from not being able to play chess very well to playing Go very well. People said it would never, computers would never recognize faces, but they're getting pretty good at that. Um, but that's still, we'll see, a long way to go to the, as you say, the singularity part where, you know, we merge with, uh, they dominate the world or they start increasing knowledge at an increasing rate. That's the, you know, that's sort of the, the holy grail. I, I think it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what knowledge is. Um, there's a lot of knowledge in a cell phone that has access to Google or DuckDuckGo. That's knowledge. That's not wisdom. Excuse me. There's a lot of information. It's not knowledge. How to. There's a lot of how to available on my phone. I can get on YouTube and figure out a lot of things. But my phone doesn't know how to do it. My phone doesn't understand it. My phone's a way for me to get access to it. To think that a machine can understand how to negotiate or how to create a symphony or how to make me cry that that through a poem, that's just a different level of knowledge than what most people are working on in the artificial intelligence space. Maybe it'll happen. I'm agnostic on it. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. But Roddy Brooks's point is that that thing is so much further away than the, than the extraordinary progress we've made so far. We've made a lot. It's kind of like driverless cars, too, right? It kind of feels right. like they're almost here. Uh, I'm not sure. Don't know. It's hard. Hard problem. Yeah, he was not... He was, he was much yep. less optimistic than... Um, uh, yeah. You know Elon Musk, or uh, you know, and, and and of course that's the role of of people like Elon Musk and entrepreneurs is to be more optimistic than is probably reasonable. Yep. You know, so one of the things you know, speaking about the future and about you know where we're headed, there's something that I've I've noticed and that you and I have talked about uh, a lot recently, which is you know trying to grapple. Uh, both with the where we're headed sort of as a culture and you know where we're ha headed you know you and I on a journey on an intellectual journey as um as classical liberals as people who ultimately believe in emergent order as a, as 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 a as a power that as a process for progress that is um the best we've ever discovered and you know and that it's it's various flavors of uh, you know political freedom and capitalism and um uh, you know free speech and freedom of expression that all of these through this emergent process you know help us get the most out of life um and yet you know you've you've expressed on your show a sense that you're not quite the optimist that you used to be. You're a little less Milton Friedman than you once were. Um, you know, what's going on there? What, in the time we have left, I really want to talk about 
this and and, and explore it with you because uh, there's been a change and I feel it too and I don't think it's just about the election or I I think it's a, a lot of different forces coming together that make it it's a strange time to at one at one level 2018 at the beginning of 2019 humanity is at its apex of material prosperity uh with with most of the indicators heading in a great direction there's you know the fall of absolute poverty the rise of literacy the fall of infant mortality the uh, you know every every like material metric things should be going great and yet you know you had a recent guest on uh claiming that we've made no progress since um I'm not even sure if it was since the middle ages it might be pre- yeah. it might have been yeah. since Cro-Magnon man I'm not sure but and you didn't you rather than saying well I think it's actually going pretty great you were pretty sympathetic to the concerns uh so tell how could that be so that how, was John Gray who um has a wonderfully provocative book called the seven types of atheism and through a series of books and including a critique, a review of Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, which is a ode to optimism, uh, puts forth the argument that I'm surprisingly sympathetic to, which is, yes, standard of living is on the rise. This is true. Uh, life expectancy generally on the rise. Poverty on the fall, going down. Uh, as you say, infant, really wonderful things. Infant mortality and, and maternal mortality going down. Some people would argue with that, but that's because I think they misunderstand the data. There's some trends going in the other direction, but that's because they changed how... Yeah, racial equality, universal suffrage, all this stuff heading in good directions. Um, And that's all true. But um, what hasn't changed is that uh, the material, our material well-being is not our main source of happiness. Now, it is true that it's better to live to be 80 and see your grandchildren and be able to play tennis uh, on your artificial hip and knee and with your graphite tennis racket and, uh, that you could afford easily because we're such a productive place. That's all good. Those are all good things. But uh, I've started to think a lot more in recent years about the non-material side of life, uh, the human connections we make with others that are an important part of our well-being that Adam Smith wrote about in his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. The respect and, and dignity, the respect of others that we have and the dignity we get from our work. These are things that are not easily quantified. Um, you know, it's commonly pointed out that in the Western world, despite our great success, we have high levels of mental illness. And that could just be that because we're rich, we can afford to have more mental illness. We could define it differently than it was in the past and we can afford to hire more psychiatrists and to get more counseling and to take more mood-altering drugs and it's always been the same it's not any worse but I'm not sure um so I, I think you have to give John Gray's due I, I like to think of uh the words of uh Henry David Thoreau the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation that was true in Thoreau's time and even though we're much richer than Thoreau was, and we have much better iPhones than he had in the 19th <laughs> century, um, it's not clear we are any less desperate, any less lonely, any less existentially uh, challenged. So, you know, on one level, this is just a cliche to say that 
you know material progress isn't everything i think the deeper question is is our material progress and our tolerance for economic change uh part of the problem and i don't think it is at least i'm not sympathetic to that idea but i think an honest person has to face it um i think a lot of the influence of the study of economics on the world and the power of economists is to think about material things to think about gross domestic product and growth rates and unemployment and these things which are proxies for human well-being but they're not exactly the same thing as human well-being and if we're not careful we'll confuse them and we'll think that a life well led is one where you make a lot of money and you have a beautiful car and house and instead of having a beautiful family and great friends and and enjoy the satisfactions that are not material so i i think it's a little more complicated than i used to think i used to think it easy to i used to find it easy to believe that things were just getting better and better and um I, i'm not sure that's true I, they are getting materially better we we have more technological knowledge there's more innovation there's a lot the toys are better for sure i like my toy i know you're a toy person like me oh, yeah. i like gadgets I love my iPhone. I love my uh, Fuji X100 uh, F camera. Um, I love YouTube. I love Spotify. Uh, I love that I can listen to anything I want, anytime I want. I mean, it's, it's a glorious time to be alive. And most more people live long, live easily, live comfortably, and have meaningful work than ever before. And that's all great. But I think there's a temptation to forget about the complexity of life and realize that's not all there is um and there are other things that that are challenging and um those are that's kind of where i'm at one of the things that it's complicated has, I, i've thought about I mean, that that's the that's <laughs> that's my mantra for the last <laughs> 20 years it's complicated yeah no it's a uh, well it's it's you, you can add that yeah, to, that's I don't right. know. Those are my two mantras. And Which... by, by the way, I, I just want to mention, because we brought this up before, and I think it's really important. Complicated ruins that storytelling. You know, just give me a good story. I want I want to know who's wearing the, the, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and I'll root for the good guys, root against the bad guys. And um, it, it's fascinating to me, actually, that you know, my wife and I are watching The Americans, which is a... Um, I won't give anything away. It's it's a set of stories about Soviet spies that they do horrific things while leading a middle class life. It's kind of like The Sopranos, but with uh, Soviet spies, and you find yourself deeply sympathetic to their travails. Um, I, I hate communism. I was a big anti-Soviet person as a kid and as a teenager and a young person, and had tremendous. I've, as, as you know, I have tremendous respect for Solzhenitsyn and his courage and others who stood up to the Soviet authoritarian state. And yet here I am empathizing with these complicated people. Tell us something about the human condition, I guess. Yeah, there's – um, it's it, it really is true that the, the resonance of stories sort of points to how deeply social we are. And how much value we ultimately, I think, de necessarily derive out of human connection, and um, and the search for meaning. Uh, this 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 struggle with that. Yeah, I, I didn't mention know. that. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I like to say we long to belong, 
and that uh, we yearn for something to be part of something larger than ourselves, whether it's God or cause. And you know, you mentioned storytelling and the the human connection. Anybody who's had children who reads to their kids at night knows that stories are the ultimate or the first drug with mother's milk. But you know, they they just can't get enough of it. You know, I got to read Curious George for the nth time. Uh, you know, my wife, after a while, I was the Curious George guy. She just couldn't handle them anymore. But, um, <laughs> you know, I had different ones that she, I made her read because the kids never get tired of them. Just want to hear them again and again and again and again. And even when they memorize them, they'd rather have you read it to them than them. They don't want to recite it to themselves. It's not the same thing. Something deeply human about that, for sure. I, um, I recently watched a documentary series about Italian Americans as you know I'm a you know uh, it, that's my tribe really? I was born in Philadelphia and my, my whole my whole family <laughs> I'm, is Italian John, I'm Jewish and, yeah, um, incredible you didn't know did you yeah <laughs> <laughs> right well well you know well, there's a yes, lot of simpatico between the Italians and the Jews so it's, it was it, we had a good foundation for our friendship yeah, right out of the it's gate true um and in this documentary series it was on PBS I think it came out in 2015 um, well, we'll dig it up and put a link to it in the show notes. Um, the there's a there's a there's a town in in Pennsylvania that I believe had either the longest life, longest uh, like recorded lives, uh, or, or maybe like the highest degree of happiness. I think it might even it might even be both. That's for 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 the sake of my poor memory, we'll just say and both. And your narrative but, fallacy, John. For and, sure. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know what you're yeah, going back and guess. <laughs> well, and 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 you know the the core of the story, and again, it's very much a narrative fallacy. It's rife with narrative narrative fallacy potential. You know, I'm, I'm reciting something I watched in a PBS <laughs> documentary, but um, this town, uh, you know, was steeped in local. You know, these are Southern Italian immigrants. There's a deep tradition of staying close to family, that family is the center of the universe. And for generation after generation, the families and the community remained very close-knit and stayed close. And that those statistics that I think were maybe first discovered in the 1950s or 60s in recent times has started to um, revert or, or move towards the national average because... Younger people are no longer staying in, at home. They're they're moving. They're going to Philly or New York or anywhere in the United States. And I never, you know, having been raised in a family where, you know, when, when we moved, we moved forty five minutes away from Philadelphia to Allentown, and for twenty five years, my mom my mom complained about how we were moved away from her family. <laughs> you moved me away from my family. It's like you know we're 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 not even you can't even watch a movie and how long it you can't even watch a one hour television show and how long it takes to get to visit the family. But, um, uh, I I never imagined um leaving the the area. And yet here I am living an airplane flight away, and it was in, in, in it, I was I've exercised my freedom and my sense of where opportunity lie to do that, and yet in a very real sense I've perhaps put myself at a at a at a, at a loss in terms of the fundamental aspects of happiness and connection to family and community. Um, you know, and and in a very real sense, from my own personal story, that 
that started long before I moved to Texas from from the Northeast. I mean, I went away to college, and so I didn't see my my family while I was away at school. And then right out of school, I moved to New York, and I didn't really. I, so I like I haven't been close and tight and within drop in distance of my my parents and my sister and my relatives uh, since I was like seventeen years old. Um, but there is something inherent in. I don't even want to just say capitalism. It's inherent in a free society that these sort of things are going to happen and these forces are going to, you know, in a very real sense, kind of pull us apart. And that coming apart, um, you know, I've been going through a similar sort of question about the, where we're headed as a society, I guess, because you know, I read Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, about the sort of divergence of cultures inside of the United States, especially that we really have kind of two Americas that, and in a very real sense, a lot of it breaks down like urban and urban versus rural. But there's something getting lost. And I don't know if it's something that can be conserved. I don't, I'm not even sure it should be, but it's not as easy a story as saying, well, it's, you know, it's freedom and it's free enterprise and it's democracy and we can, this is the way the cookie crumbles. And there's, uh, I don't know what to make of the, the messiness and the cost side of this equation. Yeah, it's complicated again. Um, and I think that's the right way to look at it. Something was lost, something was gained. And you may turn out at the end of your life to regret it, doubt it. I don't think... We want to over-romanticize small-town American family life. Uh, I like to think of the movie It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey realizes that you know there's no place like home, and Bailey Falls is where he wants to stay, even though he's got this urge to travel and wander, this great wanderlust. But the truth is, most of us don't want to live in Bailey Falls. We just don't. Uh, the, the opportunities aren't so great there and people gossip about each other and there's a lot of negatives to those small town life to that small town life which is why so many of those young people didn't want to stay there now do they give up something yeah of course they do they give up something especially if they end up marrying and having children and don't have the opportunity for the multi-generational benefits that come in a small town like that but you know it's not free and it it comes at a big cost to stay there too. So I don't I don't think that's an easy one. I think the lesson though is that is not, oh, we all need to go back to small towns because life was better then. Or we all need to live near our family because life is better then. The answer is is that you should be aware when you move away from home that there comes a, a cost comes to it. For most of us who make that decision, it's probably worth it. Um, and certainly technology makes it easier. You can Skype and FaceTime with your family in a way you couldn't before. It's not the same. It's not even close. But it's something. And I just think there's a there's a tendency to say, well, which is the right way? And the answer is it's complicated for some people. And by the way, when I talk about the importance that people have in connecting to one another, which I think is a huge part of my happiness and my deep satisfactions, uh, both within my family, with my wife, with my children, with my relatives, with my friends, my religious community, all those things are incredibly deeply gratifying to me. And yet there are people who don't care about those things and they're just not made the way I am. And they're, you know, I, I can't tell how many times, well, not that often, but occasionally introverts will write me and say, 
that does, that's a negative for me. <laughs> and so right. when you talk about a free society, I, I, I think it's really important that people get to take their own path, whether it's in the career they choose, the skills they acquire, the lifestyle they build for themselves, the family they they attach themselves to, the style of living in terms of urban versus rural. All of that is 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 up for grabs, and there's something really fabulously good about that. Now, it does come at a price. It's not straightforward. I don't want to pretend it's all everything's rosy, but I think it's really. Um, I also don't want to go in the other direction and say, you know, that this freedom we have to choose has has been a mistake. It's not a mistake. I think our culture evolves and emerges in response to these changes and opportunities to help us cope with those changes, and that's what I think is coming. Um, you know, next when we think about. You know, we talked earlier about artificial intelligence, or when we think about uh, the challenges of, say, using technology, which we haven't talked about, or the toys that we like, the gadgets. I think part of the the way that those things become healthier, they're not very healthy right now, but they're relatively new. And we're going to need rules of thumb and cultural norms for how we deal with them in our families and with our child raising, our parenting. And those things are all going to happen. So I don't want to be too pessimistic. We talked earlier about that I'm not as optimistic as I used to be. Not, I'm not pessimistic that that we've gone down some dark path either. I just think we ought to be realistic about how these often involve trade-offs. I um I don't recall where he wrote it or said it, but I believe Hayek at one point said, "Before we can understand what went wrong, we have to we have to try to understand how anything could ever go right." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's really a powerful. Uh, there's always a role for the critic. There's always, I mean, you know, criticism is incredibly important, and it's um, a credit. It's in, it's essential for discovery, right? It's, uh, you know, how else can you learn but to encounter opposition and, and um, you know, try to le- try to uh, either strengthen your own understanding or have your own understanding, you know, overturned by the criticism. But um, when so much has gone so right, if the only thing we can do is criticize and look at all the things that have gone wrong, uh, it's not really clear that that's a path to to knowledge or or to wisdom either. That's right. Um, In the little amount of time we have left, I thought I'd uh, ask you about something that I think is accidentally thematic for you, which is your discovery of meditation. I, um, you know, you and I have had several conversations about, about it. And, um, uh, my, my, my wife, Lisa has really gotten into meditation. I have not yet been able to really make a practice of it. Uh, the, the monkey brain, <laughs> really uh, gets in my way but I'm trying how did you um, how did you first get into meditation and what have you gotten out of it so my daughter got me into it it's not something I normally would have done and it's all my cultural feelings about it are negative coming into it Um, seemed like a waste of time not my thing but she encouraged me to go on a silent meditation retreat and had a big impact on me not because I was silent for five days, which is not a bad thing, but mainly because I was forced to 
confront some of my character traits and habits and life and it was just a very powerful experience and I loved it. So what kind of meditation do you do? How, what, what is the nature so, of your practice? I don't do as much meditation as I'd like, which I think puts me in a very large group. Um, I try to meditate 10 to 15 minutes a day. It ends up being more along the lines of, I'd say, 10 minutes once or twice a week. But on uh, Saturday morning as part of my Jewish practice, I meditate for uh, 20 minutes and then uh, chant with a group of people. And that's I find that very... Um, powerful and very intense um and by you know just as an aside i think music's an incredible way that we connect to each other and you know it's not there's nothing novel about that i think that's an incredibly glorious thing about the modern world is that we have more opportunities to do that than we did in ancient times really cool uh you know if you watch a a concert a rock concert it's a religious event it's a transcendent experience for the for the fans it's an amazing thing um but so so you know for me it's it's you know it's two things it's meditation and it's what's called mindfulness which is often those two things are often confused they're both about paying attention they're both about the um awareness of the stimuli and response that you're subject to as a human being the habits you've gotten used to without realizing it and so meditation helps you if you're lucky and you do it well and work at it it helps you be more mindful so I, I would make a distinction between those two I, I think I've become a little more mindful and that's just a wonderful thing uh, I've been more aware of what pushes my buttons and that's the first step towards not letting your buttons be pushed um, so it's about uh, being aware of in my case, I have, uh, I really, I'm, an, uh, I'm the oldest sibling. I have, um, I like control. And so being <laughs> aware that I like control is really great because it turns out that when I don't have control, I'm not so happy about that. Like waiting in line at the airport, I don't deal with that so well. And since I started meditating and being mindful, I, I go, oh, yeah, this is that thing that I'm really going to have no problem making the flight. Why am I getting worked up about it? And you can tell yourself, don't get worked up about it. But it doesn't help. It didn't help me. And I don't think it helps most people. I'll just tell myself not to get worked up about it. Or I'll just tell myself not to have the the third cookie. I, sometimes that, it doesn't stop me. So I found that meditation and mindfulness <laughs> helps me a little bit, breaking some of those bad habits that I've gotten used to. And um, it it can, with the right stuff surrounding it I think make you a more uh, empathetic person which I think I don't think mindfulness or meditation by itself does that but even though it's sometimes sold that way but I do think that combining with the spiritual practice or some kind of religious practice uh, can make you um, a slightly more empathetic person which is really hard you know we're kind of stuck the way we are often and I think that's great I love when that happens it's really exhilarating it's uh have you I, i'm sure you have I'm, I'm not sure we've ever talked about this but you know you, you mentioned um you know just that you like control at the end of as a part of your personality have you reflected on the irony of of that personality trait in light of um 
yeah. emergent <laughs> order being such a yeah. such a deep um, such a deep uh, uh, sort of sociological like uh, philosophical economic framework yeah, that I you adore I thought about it a lot when I was when my kids were younger and when you see children you realize that I always like to say uh, we like to get our own way and it starts young so we have a natural impulse to run people's lives certainly our own but others too <laughs> and so uh, you know when I think of emergent order it's a it's a willingness to allow people to run their own lives which um, sometimes isn't as much fun as controlling say your kids or um, yourself or your spouse or your friends but or your colleagues at work but it's a really good thing letting people flourish on their own because they have knowledge as Hayek would point out that you don't have and so when uh, when people don't do what you want them to do uh, it's great to remember I think it's Sylvia Borstein the uh, meditation teacher who says greet everything as a friend and even though there are many things in our life where you're tempted to say well not that that's not you didn't mean that did you um, the more you can handle that the, the more uh, I think the more serene your life will be and maybe you'll be better even theoretically at least a better person better spouse better friend better parent well I think with that Russ I'm going to thank you for this maiden voyage I um like so many things I'm trying to learn from you and um follow in your footsteps and uh I appreciate you taking so much time with me this afternoon uh, the feeling's mutual I've learned a ton from you John and uh I treasure our collaboration and love this is just another piece of it thanks for listening to the emergent order podcast if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again, and speak to you next time.